Himalayas Studios. And I just learned, like, blueberries weren't fucking a big deal fruit until recently. Like, <laughs> the reason blue raspberries are is because in the 50s and 60s, like, we didn't really eat that many blueberries. Like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And I loved that. It just, like, delighted me. We ate more figs than blueberries in the 1950s. What? This is Willa Paskin. She's a television critic for Slate and a host of its podcast, Decodering. And as you can hear, she is genuinely excited about blue food. Willa loves a good backstory. So I was an anthropology major in college, viral, whatever, but I've just really always, always been really interested in why people care about the things they care about. There's lots of ways to formulate that interest, but I'm like, why is this thing a thing that people are into? Like, why is it popular or like intense? Like, what is this thing emitting that makes people like, why do we care about what we care about? And I want to talk to people about it because like, it's so fun to talk to people about what's interesting. I mean, so it's like, why do we care about the things we care about? Like, we can do this. Like, we can explore all these like things. But now it's just so fun to learn about them. <laughs> From Elias Studios, this is Servant a Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, Willa Paskin and Dakota Ray, the best podcast you should be listening to. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. So, full disclosure, Decoder Ring is one of my favorite podcasts. I love the rabbit holes that Willa Paskin and Ben Frisch, her producer, dive into for each episode, telling us the stories behind stuff that many of us have heard of, but don't really know much about. Like, who coined the term mullet? So yeah, the first documented usage of mullet now nine, from 1994. It doesn't come from some random Usenet page. It comes from the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys, the rap rock outfit consisting of Adam Adrock Horovitz, Mike Mike D. Diamond, and Adam MCA Yao, who died in 2012, released the song Mullethead in June 1994. The lyrics, which reference late-stage mullet sporter Jean-Claude Van Damme, Billy Ray Cyrus, Kenny G, and Joey Buttafuoco, get at the idea, still with us, of the mullet haver as a particular kind of macho sleazebag. They skewer and condescend to a stereotype of lower-class bridge-and-tunnel guys, douches with stonewashed jeans and mullets driving into New York City to start fights and hook up with underage girls. Or how did Friday, the song by Rebecca Black, take off 
anyone who who thinks that this song only caught on because it was, I guess, so musically offensive, I think is completely misguided. Nate Sloan is an assistant professor of musicology at USC and the co-host of Switched on Pop, a wonderful podcast about how pop music works. Friday is absolutely plugged into the most successful kind of formula of popular music. Traditionally, in like an earlier period of popular music, after that chorus, you would go back to the verse. Friday doesn't do that. It does this gambit, which is very typical of 21st century pop music. It adds this section called a a post-chorus. So what makes a worthy mystery for Decoder Ring? You know it when you see it. You knew it when you see it. You see? That's what I'm saying. I hate to say it, but you're absolutely correct that that, uh, judicial ruling of pornography applies. (laughs) No, it is genuinely the surprise that I get from Decoder Ring. That, oh, that, that that surprise that makes you go, oh, fuck, that's dope. <laughs> that's what I look for in the show. <laughs> yeah, to, I mean, like, that sounds, I'm so happy that I make a show that can make anyone feel that way. That's great. I want everyone, that's what I want. I want people to be like, that weird thing? Okay, cool, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so, like, obviously the show is about, quote, cultural mysteries, very largely, largely construed. And actually, I think we have two kinds of episodes. And one is is the kind that starts with a genuine question. So that is like where the Karen comes from. Or like, yeah. um, what did happen to hotel art? Or we're like, we have something we want to find out. And then the other kind is where we're like, we have a story. It's really good. We're just going to make up a <laughs> question for it. But then often like what we actually uncover is not at all what I was genuinely expecting. Like I, for better or worse, I am doing like my thinking as it's happening. So then sometimes it turns out to actually have been a cool mystery (laughs) that there really was a good question. So it is just like what kind of like grabs our fancy. And so I think that as um, the show has gone on, that has sort of more and more oriented around sort of like these sort of mass phenomena. Because I'm just like, I'm a TV critic. I'm interested in things that are popular and like why they're popular. But I don't know that there is like, it's just like it's it's like we know it when we see it. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's, let's I said unpack that. that a little more. Like, <laughs> let's go. Like, I really want to sit with that feeling. You, you use the word like feeling. Like, you you, you like kind of take a subject, you take a story, you take a question, and you're looking for this feeling. What is that feeling? Well, it's almost just like I know what it's not. It's almost easier for me to say it. Like, there's a couple things we've backed off of. Like, we were maybe going to try to do an episode about the Winona Ryder shoplifting scandal, which we were like, ooh, fun. Like, that's Which, a again, sh- is, sounds to me like Pete decodering episode. <laughs> totally. And I started digging into it, and I realized it was just super depressing. Like, it's actually just a pretty sad story about hmm. a person who was probably on a fair bit of drugs and was like really messed up because being a young woman, like she's 29 in Hollywood is like a disaster and tracking down everyone who's involved in the case. It was just going to involve a lot of like talking to lawyers and eyewitnesses. It it just like, it suddenly just got really creepy feeling, you know, yeah. like it's not that it's not a good story for some podcast or a podcast that I think was like less light than ours. I don't mean that as an insult to us, but you know, like I think I like that it's a sort of buoyant show and I didn't yeah. quite know how to, do that you use the word buoyant to describe the show uh, and it sounds like you like you mostly choose not to cover topics that are i don't know particularly dark or that some true crime podcast would cover uh, why is that buoyancy well, something would, you focus on well i would say a couple things like i think gender reveal party like definitely has a super dark side that i think we handled <laughs> we, we tried a true crime story that actually actually like, we sort of 
this one called The Grifter that sort of coalesced in my mind how like it's a little bit hard for us to do just any kind of story. And like Ben has produced and written a couple episodes I think are really bittersweet. He's like just much more interested and in touch with like bittersweet feelings and I'm just like no I want to be entertaining and I don't know that that's right (laughs) like I kind of just think that's what I'm supposed to be doing like you're gonna give me like half an hour or 45 minutes and like I'm gonna show you a good time but I think it's also that you know I want us to be able to get into serious like I think the Karen episode is a great example like I think that episode is actually very entertaining and like does what it's supposed to do but it's obviously about a super serious heavy thing we had to walk that line So the way I've been thinking about it, I think the reason why Karen is having a moment is because we were seeing a lot of white entitlement in the age of COVID. April Williams again. I don't know if you all have seen the meme that says, like, Karen wants to speak to the manager of coronavirus. She wants the country to be reopened. (laughs) In the months since mid-March 2020, when America began shutting down to contend with COVID, there has been a seemingly endless stream of white people trying to enforce their own personal set of rules. Y'all, Karen is showing out in Trader Joe's. She does not have on a mask, and somebody said, f*** you, leave, and she is having it up. While most of these Karens have been aggressively lax and skeptical about public health protections, like the woman in Tennessee who brandished a sign saying, sacrifice the weak, reopen Tennessee, some have been overly strict, ready to call the neighborhood watch on anyone not wearing a mask. That anyone, more often than not, being a person of color. All of these COVID... Well, okay, so that's super interesting because I feel like that sensibility is scratching on something that feels like really important. I feel like a lot of the times... Not just with culture reporting, quote unquote, but, you know, other kinds of like narrative storytelling. There's um, artificial premiums placed on harder serious stories. And it's, I think personally, like, I think it's like much harder to pull off something that is something that feels substantial, but also uplifting. Not, I'm not uplifting. Maybe this is the wrong word, but it's like joyful. One of the things that I really respond to about decodering is that it, it kind of pushes past that artifice. Like this thing is important not because it's serious necessarily, but because it's important almost. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, totally. I I have no idea if it's harder because I haven't done the other thing, which seems really hard too. And there's a way for me that like hiding out in not serious feels like safer because you're like, this is just, I mean, we're having a lark. But I will say like, I mean, again, you know, my background is in television. So it's like, I have a lot of experience thinking about things that are not important, you know, but that are important. That move of like, this is this cultural object that seems like it's not serious. It's not like you don't have to think about it. But if you do, there will be so many interesting and insightful and important things you can like learn in thinking about it. Like in yeah. thinking about some VH1 reality show that you've never seen. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, it's all there, you know? Yeah. Um, I come at it, it's like, I'm not doing something important. If I made you laugh at lunch while you were like reading about some TV show, like that's what I, I do this thing because I like it, not because yeah. it's like good, right? Like if I was trying to do something good, I would like go out and help people. I'm just doing this thing that I think is fun. So the best I can do is make it fun for everyone who's consuming it too. Willa's main gig is TV critic. But a few years ago, she wanted to try something new. She and the powers that be at Slate kicked around a few ideas for podcast, like an interview show about television. But Willow was hooked on the idea of solving cultural mysteries, and that's how Decoder Ring was born. She says making Decoder Ring feels different than anything else she's ever done. 
it's like the most rewarding and interesting thing I've ever done at any point in my career. It's like the writing still hurts because <laughs> writing hurts, <laughs> but it hurts Relatable. less. <laughs> it hurts less than like writing features. And mm. like you just make something in a different way than when you write something. It's like feels like it's I'm this. It's like almost feels like it's 3D. Like you made a sculpture. It's not a painting or something, <laughs> but like it's not a sculpture, obviously. <laughs> but something about it. It's like it just feels like there's a, there's a craft involved in it, like which I mean not in like the annoying way that actors say that. Like, I mean, literally like you're putting pieces together, you're moving them around. You're like, have all this audio, which is also true with writing, but something about it, like being a script, it just, it's just way more fun. Okay. So, uh, which episodes stand out to you as ones that have really surprised you as you were making them? Yeah. yeah. Well, the Mullet episode is really interesting because, you know, like we sort of got delivered that story. Like a reader emailed us like three quarters of that story. And I was like, what? You have to be kidding. Mullet definitely existed. And I was just like, this is so fun. And then the fact that we, that Ben actually found this like smoking gun (laughs) that proved that like the lead that maybe, you know, Mullet had existed before wasn't true. It was like that we discovered making it. But um, I don't know if we had somehow accidentally ended up on Mullet and like found out it didn't exist. That would have been like definitely one of the most surprising findings we had. But that's not what happened. You know, Baby Shark, I didn't know was about Jaws. <laughs> like I didn't know that <laughs> when we started. Oh, Unicorn Poop. I was delighted to learn that there was truly like an origin of the Unicorn Poop cookie like i was just really delighted that there was an origin of (laughs) unicorn poop like i was like there's not going to be like a smoking gun and there is and like that really tickled me coming up how decoder ring channeled another beloved podcast to tell the whole story of an actress and her exercise tape As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. In 2020, Dakota Ring took on the story of a cultural icon. Jane Fonda. Aiden pulled out one, two. Three. So there's something about the Jane Fonda workout that's never quite made sense to me. I know I'm inclined to see mysteries everywhere, but I saw one here between the leg warmers and the leotards. Six, seven. Aiden pulled out right. Stretch it out. Here's me trying to explain myself during an interview. It is like mysterious to me thinking about all the facets of Jane Fonda and being like, This woman at the height of her acting career, truly, and fairly controversial political activist, got into everyone's homes as like (laughs) this mastermind aerobics instructor. It's such a weird thing. She wanted to do that and then she did it? Like, what? 
So how did you even land on the story? It's like my favorite one we've ever done. I'm obsessed <laughs> with it. Um, yes. Okay. What happened? What happened was I was listening to the Dolly Parton miniseries from Jed Abumrad from the Radio Lab guys. And in it, there's an episode about nine to five, the movie that mm. Jane Fonda made with Dolly Parton. And Jane Fonda is interviewed in it talking about Dolly. And I actually have now gone back and listened to this quote. So I misremembered it a little bit. But at the time, she was just talking about how Dolly like has this incredible connection with her audience and how she's never had that. Like she's not, people don't see themselves in her. That's not what her relationship to her audiences so she can't like it's not important basically that she not be political because people don't need to identify with her Hmm. and i just thought someone should do this for jane fonda (laughs) this woman (laughs) has had this crazy life like just this crazy life about which at the time i was just like really serious activist really serious actress and also she made an exercise tape and the exercise tape i was really interested in the exercise tape because it just seemed like so anomalous and then this summer we were working and we're sort of like not, um, <laughs> we are not always like working many episodes ahead. And uh, <laughs> we were trying to do the Winona one and it was not, I was like, could feel that it was not going to work. And I was like, hey, Jane Fonda, she's actually around all the time right now. Like it's the pandemic. Everyone's doing, what do we do the Jane Fonda workout? And I was like, the thing that's great about this is I don't need Jane Fonda to do this because the thing that I had realized really quickly when I sent out a couple emails to some people who'd written about her was that, Essentially, our whole thing about Hanoi Jane, this whole idea that like this whole, this whole like she's the villainess of the right who like, you know, literally got soldiers killed in Vietnam. This hmm. real fury at her had not really started at Vietnam. And it's not to say people weren't mad at her during Vietnam, but that it had actually had this whole second life, the second life that we're still living in, in during the Reagan administration. And I got that from literally sending one email to hmm. Mary Hirschberger, who wrote Jane Fonda's War. And so I was like, oh that's an episode. Basically, if I can do like the history of the workout and it backdoors into like, we don't even think about Jane Fonda, right? Like I don't need Jane Fonda, which is great because we like, I'm not going to get Jane Fonda, but then we got Jane Fonda. (laughs) (laughs) This is an important interview that we're doing, Willa. And let me explain. And within seconds of starting to speak with them, it became clear to me that that water and not an oral history of the Jane Fonda workout, was going to be the subject of our call. This is an important interview that we're doing, Willa, and let me explain why. And I'm, and I'm very moved that we're going to do this. I have become famous for the workout. It's been known as the Jane Fonda workout. But the person that created the workout was not me. It was Lenny Kasdan. Jane has written and spoken about Lenny, but they had never done an interview together before this. She was doing it now to try to credit Lenny and to make amends for a wrong she'd done her back in the 1970s. I did not really understand who Lenny was and what the workout meant to her. And it was like, it was, this is her Sistine Chapel. She put it together deliberately, and it was her life. And I I am sorry to say that I didn't really realize that. And now I know, knowing what I know, that basically Lenny had, Jane was basically trying to find an opportunity to talk about it with Lenny because Lenny had been like, you need to give me credit. And I just happened to wander into this moment at the right time. 
and it was really like a process of discovery. Like every time I talked to Lenny on the phone, I like understood the situation better and more clearly. And I realized I hadn't understood it at all. And everything that I thought the episode was going to be about, like this cultural history of Jane Fonda, ended up being the second episode. Like the first episode, I had no idea it existed until I got on the phone with those people. I mean, that was the most fun. <laughs> that was the <laughs> most fun. It was so fun. And I think that show is like, I, like Ben the producer, he, he was like, this is like kind of like our heavyweight episode. And he's yeah. totally right. Like it's us like resolving this. And I was just like, but I love heavyweight. That's so great. Like I'm, that's, I, that's what I want to hear. Like, I wish I could do that a billion times. Like, but, uh, you know, not everyone, <laughs> you yeah, don't so you always this, stumble this into that. There's, it's like a prequel and then, and then like that, and then it sets up the yeah. story that you actually want to pursue. Right. And the story that you pursue let me just put it this way. Like, Jane Vanna, after listening to the episode, feels like the eternal celebrity. Like, she... Oh, my God, Jane Vanna, what a <laughs> boss. <laughs> I think one of the big things that the second episode in particular made me think a lot about of is the nature of sort of activism specifically and how, like, activists have to become celebrities. Celebrities are naturally activists. Like, they cannot say anything without um, having political imports necessarily. The sort of walls have been dissolved. And it, it feels like it's a logical endpoint. We were always going to get to this point. But I wonder um, how you feel like having reported out the story, how you feel about that relationship between celebrity activism now? Oh, I actually, my read of it is pretty different. I actually think mm. like, I think Jane Fonda proves like most celebrities aren't doing shit, you know, like, um, <laughs> like she really was getting arrested yes. like for Native American rights, like starting in 1970, like she did the work, like she stopped doing movies, like she was going everywhere across the country, wherever they asked her to, she was like being quiet and listening and like stuffing envelopes, like she was doing the work and then at some point realized that yes attention was going to accrue to her even if she wasn't the best spokesperson right even if she knew the least and she had to figure out how to deal with that and live with that and it was hard you know she talks about it like she talks about how she's sort of talking in like Catherine Hepburn Ivy League vowels like at the beginning of the 70s you know and mm. there's a bunch of interviews that she did in 75 like before the war is over but when her image rehabilitation is already starting where it's very like underscoring how domestic she is and her and Tom Hayden are like they don't have any you know they live in this house and they they're raising their kid and she's just like a mom and she's like a regular person kind of thing um, and you can see her sort of trying to talk about it more calmly like talk about how she was you know she knows she was angry and she was shrill and she's not anymore but like it's all just like she's doing all this thinking about how to present herself but she's mm. still doing the work do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. she never stops. And, like, it's just like, I'm sorry, there aren't that many celebrities, like, getting arrested in front of the White House, like, to protest climate change right now. I mean, I know she was, like, with Amy Schumer, but that's not, like, a thing a lot of people are doing. And Jane Vaughn is 81, and she's doing it still. And she never <laughs> stopped doing it. It's just, like, you know, like, Muhammad Ali is another person who had real, real consequences for mm -hmm. his political beliefs, right? And she actually had real consequences. Like, Jane Fonda, in our terminology, like, got pretty close to getting canceled for being right about Vietnam. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. being right, but also, at the time, being, like, with, you know, the majority of Americans being, like, we are fighting this war. We shouldn't be fighting this war. And I don't see a ton of celebrities doing that. I mean, there's activists. Activists becoming celebrities, to me, is, like, a different thing. Mm. And activists, there's obviously a lot of people doing really great work, but they're not, you know, that's, that feels different to me. I don't see a lot of celebrities like doing what Jane Fonda does. I mean, and, and it's, I don't even begrudge them that. It's so fraught, you know? So the show is going to a seasonal model. 
which means that this summer we're going to start getting new episodes of Dakota Ring every week, which means that that's a lot of new episodes. Um, so what are you going to do? What's like what's left? Do you have like a white whale Moby Dick subject? You totally really now. Totally now. I have such a boring answer to this question. No, 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 no. But you've done everything. <laughs> no, I haven't done everything at all. It's that I none of the ones we've done have been Moby Dicks for me either. I mean, the Jane Fonda was like maybe the closest thing I want to do. Yeah. There's a couple that I want to do that I don't want to tell you because they're really good ideas and I don't <laughs> want to give them to you. I mean, I'll tell you one because I don't think it's going to happen. It's also not that good an idea, which is that we really have been wanting, like since the beginning, people have been like, you should do one about very special episodes. Um, oh my TV. God. Right. And we were like, well, what's the very special episode? Like obviously the Saved by the Bell, Jesse's song. I'm So I've been trying to get Elizabeth Berkeley to talk to us for like a gajillion years. And I thought I was going to be able to get her to do it because she ha- is now again on Saved by the Bell. But I still failed. <laughs> well, I, uh, I hope Elizabeth Berkeley answers your call uh, and we can get that episode. Willow, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Servanapod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andrea Swahe, Jessica Alpert, and John Prouty at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servantopod is a production of Alias Studios. has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.